that uh, uh, as this is the end of an era, beginning of a new, that uh, we would be uh, seeking your face every step of the way. We do thank you. We do praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Poor Solomon started a new era. Uh, I I don't uh, envy him in, in many ways because his dad had a big reputation. It's hard to fill you someone's shoes when dad was the mighty King David. I guess if Solomon didn't know it, but for all the generations that happened, 20, 30 generations, probably all the way up to Jesus, everyone's always talking about how great David is. And if you got to succeed someone and fill their shoes, you want to, you know, it's easier to succeed a loser, I guess. If somebody was a failure and then you had to fill their shoes, you got any improvement you get patted on the back for. But when someone was a huge success, I guess you kind of feel overwhelmed. Solomon, I think, as his father David had uh, made, uh, took the empire, and I don't know why everyone uses this term, they, he, he brought Israel to its zenith. That's their term, the peak, the climax. The best Israel's ever was was really operating underneath King David. And Solomon, his son, has to take over. And David would have loved to build the temple. That was supposed to be the crown jewel of his kingdom, a temple dedicated to the one true God, Jehovah. And we talked about this last week where David couldn't build it. God said, your hands are full of blood. You're a man of war. A man of war is not going to build my temple. You need to have your son, Solomon, shalom, same type word, meaning peace, rest, Solomon's going to be the one that's going to build the temple. But we watched David. David, I think, he bit hard on that bullet and said, I I can't build the temple for God. My son's going to do it. But I'm going to do every single thing I can to make it possible for Solomon to do a good job. So what did he do? He started building a war chest of cash. He took uh, some $19 billion in gold alone, never mind the silver, the bronze, uh, the wood, the timber, all the other, the stone, just in gold, $19 billion. And says, look, Solomon, I, I got a little present for you that I want you to build a temple with. And then he started to have every single detail of this thing meticulously put together. David just probably had this big old, you know, board set up with his big chess pieces with all the little people set up and where all the little things were supposed to be. and says, look, Solomon, you're going to build it like this. You're going to build it like this. You're going to build it like this. He went through six, seven chapters of Second Chronicles. We were going through it where David outlined all of his little fantasies on how he wanted this thing to be set up and said, Solomon, here, here's the blueprint for what I want you to build. And here are all the families. These guys are going to be all the guards. These guys are going to be all the singers. They're going to sing this song at this time. And then you're going to have all these people. And then and these are going to be your priests. And then he's going to say, and then in 20 different weeks, we're going to break it down into little groups that each family of the priesthood is going to do it for two weeks and to break it up into 20 little shifts. And then this family's going to do it then. And this family's going to do it then. You go, gee, David, he sent up the whole thing. And so here's Solomon, you know, dad finally dies. He gets to be king. And we watch several things of Solomon. We said he's going to do three things right. He's going to turn around and he's going to be listening to his father. That's critical. I'm learning today more than ever to listen to people that are older than me. Um, Boy, there's no substitute for maturity. There's no substitute for experience. And sometimes 
old people know a lot more than I do. I think I'm learning that. I learned a lot from uh, my father-in-law. I, I mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating. Uh, my Carl's dad, Carmen, he's a World War II vet. He's 75, whatever, probably a little bit older now. Somewhere around there. And uh, we went up to go up to see, uh, to see uh, uh, his sister died. He comes from this big Italian family. He's got nine sisters and him and a brother as well, and one of his sisters dies. And we drive up to the funeral home, and here's Carmen. He's greeting us at the place. He goes, hey, Dave, how's it going? You know, Carla, good to see you. Happy to see the kids. And this guy's happy at his sister's funeral. You know, I looked at that, and I go, that's strange. How can you be happy at your sister's funeral? You know, people die, you know. Didn't rock his boat at all. He was happy to see the kids. And I, I look at Carmen, and I, I could say, man, this guy, Carmen, he could win the lottery. If he, he won the lottery and won a million dollars, you know what he'd say? So what? He goes, it's a million bucks. You know, here, I, I'll give it away. I'll do this. You know, I, money doesn't mean anything to him. His sister dying doesn't mean anything to him. He just goes through life, and he's happy with the very simple things of life. Now, I turn around, and I look at Amy. Amy, my daughter, who's three at the time, Amy is the biggest ball of joy you'd ever see. She runs down the stairs. She's running all over the place. She is happy, happy, happy. And she's just happy. Or she's screaming her head off in torture and pain and mayhem. And you go, what a terrible life to live as a three-year-old. She's crying. She doesn't get the crayon. She doesn't get that. And poor Amy, she's either off or she's on. She's either in joy or in pain. And there's no middle ground with Amy. She's either completely happy or she's completely miserable. And I started scratching my head and I go, well, at three years of age, watch how that happens. You got the highs and you got the lows. You got the highs, you got the lows. You got the highs, you got the lows. 75 years of age, you got, hey, you know, your sister dies, so what? You got, you win the lottery, so what? You got this, you know, Carmen just never changes. Now, you take that into life and you go, I've noticed that. The older you get, the more it's going to take to rock your boat, the more stable you are, the more stable you are, you can turn around and, and, and be able to sit down there. And when problems happen, you're going to do what? You're going to be able to handle them. It's not a crisis. It's not a problem. You say, this too shall pass. This is what old people say. They're not going to sit down and worry about all the things of the world or who won the election and lost the election. It's going to cause them to go into fits of depression. And I want to learn like that. And so here's Solomon. What's Solomon doing? He says, I'm going to listen to my father. My father has spent some time laying out some groundwork for me and asked me to do some things, and I'm going to be faithful to do that. And I like that. He's going to sit down there and and learn to listen to his father. That's the beginning of wisdom for Solomon here. Secondly, he's going to sit down. He's going to be obedient. His father says, you got to kill this guy, this guy, and this guy. When I'm dead, they're gone. (laughs) You go, ooh, that's pretty gutsy. And he sat down and had a clean house a little bit and says, okay, my dad's dead. Dad wanted me to take care of a few of these issues. He very tactfully and fairly and justly dealt with each one of those issues last week we were talking about. And uh, a couple guys had to die. 
And Solomon was obedient. And I think that's another key to the wisdom of Solomon is to say sometimes you have to do some tough things. You got to do them. And a, a sissy who runs from his problems or a coward who, who knows what he should do and doesn't do it, you're never going to be able to go further in wisdom. That speaks volumes. Third thing Solomon's going to do is we're getting into chapter 3. Solomon is smart because he's going to ask and he's going to say, Lord, I need some help. And I think this even touches God. Reread the text. Well, there's going to be a hiccup in there in verse 1. Stupid Solomon's going to make a mistake. Did I? I, I didn't mention that part. Let's read verse 1. Then Solomon formed a marriage, what? Alliance with who? Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building what? His own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Now, before we build up Solomon and all of his wisdom and glory, do you just read that? The poor guy just took over the kingdom. And what happens? He's making a political alliance for peace. Egypt being the world power to the south says, I'll marry this guy's daughter so that he won't come up and kill me. And I'm going to sit down and marry a foreign woman. And we're going to understand all the things about foreign women and where they're from and what they're trying to do. First thing he does, this is before he gets the big blessing, he's already made a major mistake with this woman. We're going to understand some of the finer points of Solomon. This woman's going to drive him batty. She's never going to be happy. And she's really always going to be considered the primary wife. Even though I think Solomon has 300 wives and 700 concubines, this one is the one that always nags him and drives him up a wall. When Solomon writes the Proverbs and says, gee, it's better to be uh, on the corner of the roof than to be downstairs with a contention woman, I'm convinced it's this wife right here. And she says, I'm number one here, pal. I'm the primo one. My daddy's king of, you know, of Egypt down there. He's Pharaoh, pal. You'll do what I tell you to do. And he's going to turn around, and before he even builds the temple, he's going to build this woman a house and says, i got to take care of the wife first, take care of this stuff, then I'll build the temple. And you go, priorities are a little bit wrong here. But interesting, we'll try and ignore this, but it's going to come back, and all of a sudden we're going to know that Solomon's downfall is going to be his women. So as we look at the wisest man in the world, he's going to make some mistakes, right? But before he gets there, notice what he does right before we pick on poor Solomon. First, he listened to his father. Second, we said he did some cleaning and he was obedient to the problems that were there. But he turns around in verse 2, he says, The people were still sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. So we didn't have a central temple in Jerusalem yet. And what everyone would do if they wanted to worship Jehovah, the true God, they would go out to a high place and sacrifice something. And there was a whole bunch of little temples all over the place, but not one central one. And it wasn't the way that the Lord wanted it. So verse 3, it says, Now Solomon loved the Lord. He really did. And he, he, and he loved the Lord walking in the statutes of his father David, just what his dad told him to do, except he sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places. And the king went to Gibeon 
to sacrifice there. This is out around the tribe of Benjamin. It's not too far from home here. For that was the great high place. Solomon offered a, a, a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Can you imagine the slaughterhouse of what that is to sacrifice a thousand animals at once? It's an awful lot of blood flowing. A lot of meat hanging up there in the coolers afterwards. And what it turns out to is a huge barbecue for everyone to eat at. And it's a big party. And they're all saying, thank you, Lord. So he's there sacrificing a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. And in Gibeon, notice this, it says, The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. So here he is, he's just going to bed, and God speaks to him in a dream. It's another thing, I'm, I'm, I've been praying a lot longer that, that for certain people that I try to talk to and I can't get anywhere with, my prayer request has been, Lord, speak to that person in a dream. Give them a vision, you know? Show them what your truth is. And I think God speaks to many people in a dream. And so he's getting a vision, but this was definitely a dream. And so in Gimeon, it says, verse 5, he appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. And God comes up to Solomon and he says, ask what you wish me to give you. Here, I'm the little genie in the bottle. You can have anything you want, Solomon. What would it be? Ask what you wish me to give you. And then Solomon said, I'll tell you what I want, God, more than anything else. He says, Thou hast shown great loving kindness to thy servant David, my father. You've made David a great man. Accordingly, uh, as he walked before thee in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward thee, and thou hast reserved for him this great loving kindness that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. So my father's been blessed and now I'm going to inherit all the things of my father. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king in place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in and thy servant is in the midst of thy people which thou hast chosen a great people who cannot be numbered or counted for multitude so so give thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people to discern between good and evil For who is able to judge this great people of thine? And so what is he saying? He's saying, look, Lord, I'm getting handed buckets of problems here. You are an awesome God. And you're expecting me just to grab hold of the reins of the anointed nation of God's chosen people, which my father has built to the zenith of where it's supposed to be. And I love him. He goes, I don't know what I'm doing, God. I don't, and I, I like the expression. He goes, I don't know how to come in or to go out. And you almost have this, this, this feeling that Solomon's saying, you know, it's like we're all supposed to be dressed up to go to dinner and we're going to a real formal ball and I don't know where I'm supposed to sit, how I'm supposed to hold my teacup or which knife I'm supposed to use to cut my meat and which spoon is for the, for the coffee. I don't know all this stuff. I, how am I supposed to know if that's the way it is to come in or to come out or to handle a formal meal? And what Solomon is really saying, he goes, just think of life. It's, there's so many things of etiquette or so many details that I'm supposed to know. And he's realizing one important factor. He's in over his head. 
And he's saying, I can't follow my father's footsteps. My dad, he's got this whole thing and he set it all up. I'm not seeing the vision. I don't know how to take it. I don't know what to do with it. And he's asking for, notice what he's asking for. So give thy servant an understanding heart. I got to be able to, to think the right way so that I can judge thy people to discern between good and evil. And Solomon is so right on. He's saying, I just want to be able to know what right and wrong is. I want to be able to know your voice. I want to be able to listen to your voice. And I want to be able to know what I'm supposed to be doing. He's asking for wisdom. Solomon is the wisest man that ever lived, right? So we said, if you saw a skunk on the road, and we said that, uh, you know, you can look at that. Knowledge is that you turn around and understand that there's a skunk. It's a little black animal with a white stripe down the side. And you go, that's a skunk. Wisdom, we said, is when you can turn around and say, that's a skunk and I need to go in the other direction. So you want to turn around and be able to say, I need wisdom sometimes, not just to have a knowledge of the facts, but be able to discern good and evil, to be able to sit down and to see the truth that's in front of me and to discern those things so that I can have wisdom, so that I know how to come and I can go. So I know how to leave and know when to get up, know when to sit or when to stay, and how do I conduct myself. And that's the problem that, that handles all of us. We want to be able to do the right thing at the right time, and we want to be wise. We want to be steadfast. We want to be not rocked off course or taken off course by something that can mislead us. That's the goal of life. That's what wisdom is. That's what maturity can sometimes bring us, is to say, look, these people know that this is a time to panic, and it's a time to move, and the other people say, That's, it's not the time to move or to panic. And I want to be wise. I want to be like an old man that, that understands that I'm not going to panic and scream and cry like a baby whenever, you know, the bottle drops on the floor. And, and God's looking for that. And God can provide that. I think that's amazing. But the whole key is to sit down and say, Lord, I don't know everything. And I'm learning that as we're going into the building phase here, we're looking at a gazillion different things, and I got to say, Lord, I, I, I don't know what I'm doing. We went through a whole big swing. If you part of our church, you understood some of the things that we're going through. And I started looking at all the problems that faced me as pastor and faced our church on how we're to survive as a church. I started to realize, I said, I don't know what I'm doing. I really don't, Lord. There's, there's legal issues, there's spiritual issues, there's, you know, financial issues. There's issues that are, are, I'm getting hit with from 15 different directions. And I, 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 I honestly, I came to this point where I just said, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. By definition, I'm just a sinner that loves Jesus. That's all I've ever said is, Jesus, I need help. And when I turn around and say the same thing, I said, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. God provides Answers and things start to happen in a supernatural way. And notice God is just tickled pink over this thing. I think this blessed God so much that he, that he looked at Solomon and says, let me give you anything you want. You can have anything you want. And I'm sure God up in heaven sat back a million times and heard everybody give him their want list. 
How many of our prayers are made up out of, God, I want a car, I want a house, I want long life, I want my health. God, I'm fighting cancer, get rid of the cancer. And I think God is just saying there's this big, long want list that everybody comes and nags God about things all the time. And God, with a million requests coming at him, and I want this, I want that, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this, and my sister did this, and my sister did that, and I'm tired of this, and my brother said that, and, and my mother didn't do this, and why isn't this? And everybody's screaming, and God's like, ugh, turn off. Off. And then someone turns around and says, God, I, I don't know what I'm doing. What a completely different voice. Especially when God comes up and says, what, what would you like? You name it. Yeah, I'll give it to you. And the guy just says, I don't know what I'm doing. You can just see God going, Whew, what a breath of fresh air this guy is. I like that attitude. And just thinking of God as someone who has to answer prayer all the time, I just think it's refreshing. And God, I think he takes it. It's rather refreshing. He says, verse 10, and it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said to him, he says, because you've asked this thing, and you have not asked for yourself long life, or, or have, uh, uh, nor have you asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies. You know, normally you can say, God, kill that guy. And God's like, I must get that request all day long. And he goes, you haven't said, uh, you haven't asked for the life of your enemies, but you've asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I've done it. I'll answer that prayer. That's one that's going to get answered. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among you, among the kings like you, all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and the commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. So notice God is putting this and making it conditional. He says, I'll give you it. Man, I've got it all to you. So what does he say? Man, I am so impressed by what you've asked for me that you weren't some greedy, selfish person I'm going to give you what you asked for and I'm going to throw everything else on top of it. And Solomon becomes a guy that's filthy rich. He's super smart. He didn't ask for wives. He gets them by the bucket load. He didn't ask for this. He gets everything you could ever imagine. And Solomon, to me, becomes somebody who I looked at when I was a Marine, unsaved in the Marine Corps, And the first book I ever read was the book of Ecclesiastes. I sat down and I read the book of Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon. And Solomon comes up and says, Look, pal, in so many words, I've been there, done that, got the T-shirt, as they say. You want to pursue something with your life? I've had it in buckets. You want money? I'm filthy rich. You want to have sex? I've had everything you could imagine and every single woman or whatever it could be, I've been out there and done that. 
You want to talk about drinking? I've drunk myself silly. And I've experienced everything. You want to talk about botany and flowers? I've studied botany and flowers for all day long and everything I can. You want to sit down and talk about reason and philosophy? I've sat down and reasoned and had philosophy with the greatest minds on the planet. And he goes, it's all foolishness. Now for me, who says, oh man, I wish I could make some money and get me a, a good girlfriend and, and I'll, I'll be happy if I just get some money and have a wife and everything will be fine. That's what you're thinking all your whole life. And you look at that and you go, well, I suppose if I had it, it's still not going to make me happy. Well then what's going to make me happy? And Solomon just says, the Lord. It's the only thing that's going to make you happy. And you go, well, if this guy's got everything, well, I suppose that whatever I could make, it would be laughable to whatever this guy had, and he says that's nothing. And it helps when you go, hey, this guy's, you know, it's one thing when a poor guy's sitting there on the street and he's homeless and he's saying, you know, ah, you know, money's of the devil. It's evil, it's wicked. And you go, yeah, well, it's just because you don't have any, pal, and you're just saying it, you know, sour grapes, you know, we're not just stupid. And I can sit down and say, well, I haven't been on a date in a year, so my women are stupid. We hate them, you know. Well, that's because you haven't been on a date in a year or something, you know. But, you know, when someone says, hey, I've experienced it. I've done that. I've been there. Got the T-shirt. There's nothing to it. You go, wow, that's something to listen to. And Solomon is going to have a very vivid life of watching and experiencing so many things. And yet... The one conclusion he comes to after all of his things and says, man, I've been there through everything. The only thing that matters is you should love the Lord. You have a discerning spirit. The beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. The end of all wisdom is to fear the Lord, is to walk with God. A hundred years from now, the only thing that's going to matter is your walk with God. What you've done for Jesus Christ today, those are the only eternal rewards you're going to have. And so God is going to turn around and give them. It's, it's conditional. And he says, you've got to continue to, to walk. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments, uh, as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. So... Here he is, he's, he's watching this, and God's just loving him. Then Solomon awoke, and it was a dream. And behold, it was a dream, and, and he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered burnt offerings and made peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. So whatever it was, God worked through a dream. And he says, this is, I'm speaking to you. And Solomon responded, and he says, thank you, Lord. And he's going to take this to heart and uh, walk in faith, believing that it's true. So he wants to see now, okay, I'm supposed to be something wise, something discerning, something beyond my years. Here comes the classic critical situation going to get thrown in his face. Then two women who were harlots, they were harlots, they came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. Two harlots living in the same house. And I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. And it happened on the third day after I gave birth that this woman also gave birth to a child. And we were together. So two harlots 
sleeping in the same bed, just gave birth. He says, there was no stranger with us in the house, only the two of us in the house. So, they're down for business because they got some kids. And you're saying, nobody else is coming in or out. We got newborn babies here that are three days old. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on it. And I don't know, if you ever have kids and you're trying to first put that kid in bed and you're trying to lay next to it, that's one of your biggest fears. You roll over and kill your kid. And so, sure enough, I guess she's nursing her child and one of the women rolls over and kills her kid. And so this other lady's sitting down there and I guess they're both Jewish women with both Jewish husbands. They kids probably look alike, right? And it says, So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son uh, from beside me while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead son in my bosom. So this lady, she killed her kid and then swapped it because when I woke up, I recognized that this isn't my kid. And when I arose in the morning to nurse my son, behold, verse 21, he was dead. But when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold, he was not my son, whom I had born. Then the other woman said, No, it's a lie. For the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. But the first woman said, No, for the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. So here's Solomon. He's got this situation. The two women are up there fighting and ripping each other apart. And I guess you got two women that kind of look alike. They both got kids that look alike. They're both stayed in the same house. And one of them did the deed of switching babies one of them's either lying or one of them has done a, a malicious act and Solomon's now going to be presented with this whole situation you know, how do you deal with such a mess there's a lot of times we have to deal with issues that on the outside the appearance would be if you looked at this you don't know what the answer is what Solomon's going to do the first time you read this you go this is a pickle you know how do you handle this how do you how would you how would you actually answer this question? You'd sit down and say, who's supposed to know who did what and where? Somebody's lying or somebody killed their baby and swapped it out. But sooner or later, you got two three-day-old babies that were swapped and only a mother could tell and nobody else could tell whose child was whose. But certainly between both of them, they would actually know. And maybe one of them laid on their kid and said that it was swapped out and she's trying to steal it through the courts and from the other one. And, and it's a pickle. He's, and Solomon's gone... So Solomon, he's got to be a smart guy. He says, verse 23, Then the king said, uh, Then the king said, The one says, This is my son who is living, and your son is dead. Yours is the dead one. The other one says, No, for your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. He's like, I could pull my hair out over this. And the king said, Get me a sword. After the one and after the other. That's how we'll settle this. And you can just hear everyone going, oh, whoa, that's, you know, extreme. Then the woman whose child was living, somebody's got to speak up, was living. One spoke, uh, then the woman whose child was the living one spoke to the king 
For she was deeply stirred over her son and said, Oh, no, 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 my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. So he's smart. He's saying, well, the real mother would not want to see her son killed. She'd rather lose it than see it hacked to pieces. But the other one who really had the baby killed and wanted vengeful, right? And I guess her son died, so she'd like to see her friend's child die, so it's all evened up. He says, but the other one said, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Go ahead, Solomon. Hack him to pieces. And then the king answered and said, yeah, give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw uh, that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. So this is going to be probably, I, it's a famous story. It's something the world likes to quote. Secular people seem to quote this story. It, it shows some common sense and wisdom is what it, it shows. It shows that Solomon was smart and people said, whoa, you can't pull a fast one on that Solomon, dude. I mean, he he can see right through people's lies. And people were just going, pretty smart guy. Because look at him. The real mother would want to preserve the life of the child. That's how you can tell. And Solomon is just exercising discernment. He's learning a few things in life. He's got to be able to have a few simple things in his heart that really sometimes people take years and years to attain this knowledge. But it's very simple knowledge. All he had to do is he had to recognize that... uh, that man's heart is wicked. He recognized it, that somebody in the camp was lying. And as you start to discern and understand people's hearts, and you look at the heart of men, understand that they are capable of lying. And a lie is being presented here. And so he's recognizing it's a heart issue. And then he has to recognize that a sinful heart is willing to compromise he's learned that that's that's a gift of god to say someone in sin and people do sin they're capable of doing wicked things and solomon turns around and he says look i'm not i'm not i'm not afraid to say that someone's going to compromise and here he's going to turn around And he's going to say, someone's lying and wants to kill someone, and someone's saying the truth is going to bring forth life. That's important. When someone's in sin, the wicked heart of man comes out, that wickedness will always want to kill. One lady says, I'll kill that baby, and I'll chop it up in pieces. And he can go, that's the lying woman. The woman in truth will always, and people who stand up for the truth, will always be people that want to preserve life. And you can watch people and say, are you someone who maliciously destroys their environment? Or are you somebody who has a value for your environment, your fellow human being? I'm telling you, one of my biggest sins, I can forgive adultery pretty easy. You can commit adultery, I can forgive you. I can't forgive litterers. I can't. You can sit down and be driving in the car in front of me and you throw a pop bottle out the window, smash it against the side of the curb. I'm holding back all my anger not to drive ahead of you and drive you off the road. I 
can't stand people that want to litter. Because I think it's such an abhorrent thing. People just say, you know, you look at a neighborhood, and a neighborhood is just scuzzy with trash all over the place. You go into a poor neighborhood for some strange reason, and there's just the, the ghetto, and there's trash everywhere. And you're going, look, you know, it's bad enough we've got problems here, but you've got to throw stuff everywhere and make it look bad. You can have a small house in a small place, but you don't have to throw stuff everywhere. Pick up after yourself. I don't know. It's the old Boy Scout inside of me, you know? And, and Solomon's recognizing people that are in sin, they're going to do destructive things. They're going to want to kill other people. They're going to sit down there, and that's a fruit of the Spirit. You're going to know them by their fruit, Jesus said. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, right? Nor figs from thistles or whatever it is, right? And, and you go, you're going to know them by their fruits. And Solomon is saying, look, let's put the baby in there. Let's, let's just put a... Let's, now, now watch what he does. Solomon, in his wisdom, this is what he does. He thinks outside the box. That, that's a key to wisdom. He's presented with a formula, right? He's presented... Well, look at it this way. You ever, you ever see a, a formula? A formula is uh, X uh, plus Y equals Z, right? That's a formula. And in every formula, right, we can look at it, and there's one thing that every formula, a little algebra here for you, we always get the equal sign right here, right? And that's going to tell you in a formula that these two things are going to balance. And people with mathematical minds will always sit down and say, well, we can figure out what some of these things are if we can find out some of the other factors because we know that there has to be a balance in every given formula. And we have a tendency sometimes to think in a linear format to make everything, well, if this is this and this is this, well, now we have two equal things, but we will never know the truth. And watch this. It's almost like Solomon says, well, I'm not going to think in a formula. I'm going to think from a different angle, from a different perspective. I'm going to look at this and say, I don't want to look at it as this equals this. I don't want to think of this as two people sitting down in front of me, hashing it out. I've got this lady that looks and this lady that looks. They both look the same. One of them's lying and they're both crying with the same little, you know, sympathy, little heart. My baby, my baby, my baby, my baby. And we don't know what to do. You can't, you can't weigh any of this. And he has to think outside the box. He has to be willing to say, I need to look at this other than the perspective, the way that everyone else will look at it. That's wisdom. Because sometimes life seems very, you know, everyone has their ways and philosophies. And for you to go and grab hold of the truths of God and wisdom, you sometimes have to say, I'm not going to think like everyone else thinks. I'm going to think outside the box. I'm going to come and attack this situation from uh, another, another angle. And notice what he does. If this was me in the situation, you'd think you'd say, well, well, show me an identifying mark with the baby, you know? Uh, show me that he's got a birthmark. Can you describe this? Or tell me something that we'd want to keep investigating until we could somehow or another find some truth. What Solomon does, listen to this, he turns around and he goes, he uses shock value. He goes, he goes, well, go get a sword. We'll hack the baby to pieces. And you go, what? <laughs> We're going to do what? <laughs> That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That's not the solution to the problem. You don't hack the baby to pieces because you're going to divide the baby. You want to fight over a baby? Well, he almost sounds like he's stupid, doesn't he? He goes, well, you you got a baby to divide between the two? Well, we'll cut it in the middle and half for you and half for you, 
<laughs> and it almost sounds ludicrous because he's saying, watch this. This is important. Wisdom, wisdom always thinks ahead instead of the situation that you're in. I don't always do that. Old people have a tendency to do that much better than I do. Been there, done that. They got the t-shirt. They're not going to rock their boat. They're not going to move off course at all. They're going to sit down and say, they're going to say, let's think one step ahead of the situation that we're in and put ourselves in a situation that if we said, let's hack the baby to pieces, then all of a sudden we're going to find where two hearts are going to be One's going to be lying, one's going to be truth. And we're going to find a way to extract the truth by having these people come to a different conclusion than what they were expecting to hear. And that's what makes Solomon so wise. He's going, i got to be one step ahead of this game. I'm seeing people, and if I took it at face value, and if I thought the way that they wanted me to think, I wouldn't be able to answer them. But I'll tell you what. They weren't expecting me to say, cut the baby in half. It caught them off guard. And when they were caught off guard, you had a chance to see their true colors. And for them to turn around and say, hack the baby. Well, then kill that baby. Yeah. Solomon can say, well, you're obviously the lady that washed your baby last night. And you're mad because your son died. You rolled over and killed him. And so you'd like to see your friend's baby die just so that you're going to sit down and, and, and feel, you know, uh, that uh, misery loves company. And the other one who says, that's my baby, don't ever kill my baby. She's going to say, just let the other lady have it. I, I don't want to see my baby killed. I'd rather see the lady have it than my baby killed. And says, see, that's love. And so the one that was willing to give it up, that's the true mother. And you go, he's willing to think outside the box. He's willing to think a step ahead. He's understanding the sinful nature of man. And he's able to sit down there and just say he knows that a, a wicked heart will be the first one that's going to compromise and, and will want this to happen. Those are precious lessons in life. I'm learning to be smart doesn't require a whole lot requires some of the basics of understanding and being able to watch and to be able to observe and to not take everything at face value for what they're coming at you with. So Solomon has got huge wisdom. And trust me, I've, I've, I'm learning. As you go through life, you're watching the things happen in front of us. We're going through the whole church process. This is the end of our era here at this old building. And uh, and people come at you. They, they give you their line of arguments that they want you to conform to their way of thinking so that they can control you. And I think I was put in such a situation that I had five different people putting me into such a form of thinking that I couldn't appease all five people. And I said, something's going to give. And you sit down and says, Lord, I want your will to be done. And what I want to do is to say, Lord, I'm in over my head. And when I can sit down and say, Lord, I'm in over my head. I can't appease, you know, this and this and this and this. And, and I, it all comes caving in on me. And my simple request is to say, Lord, we'll pray every single night. I, we'll pray every single night for, for five years. I don't care. I, I, you know, whoever seeks wisdom, let him ask, it says in James. That's one prayer request God always answers is anytime somebody says they need wisdom. 
Now, look at Solomon. What did he do right? He sat down and says, Lord, it's not me. I can't do it. I'm lost. I need help. And the two harlots come up, and what do they say? Gimme, 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 gimme. And especially the one that was wrong said, kill it, kill it, kill it, kill it. The exact antithesis of what he said. Simplicity was to say, Lord, I need help. And it should change your prayer life a little bit. You know, when you sit down and says, Lord, I, I need help. Uh, you know, it's it's amazing how to win friends and influence people, right? Dale Carnegie's book, classic book. Ask questions. Talk to people and respect what they're saying. Remember their names would be Dale Carnegie's idea, right? But I used to have this friend, John Parker. And uh, we used to go around when we were growing up and they'd be building houses. And John Parker would go around and he had a natural propensity to ask everybody questions till it irritated them to no end. What are you putting the board there for? Why do you put five screws in the board? What are you going to do with the wood when you're done? Why are you putting this over there? What's your name? What are you doing over there? What time did you get here? And, you know, the guys would be carpenters or whatever, and John Parker would go up and just start asking all these questions. Well, you know, you go, you think, well, the guys are going, John, shut up, you know, and get out of here, you little kid. But you know what? That's not what happened. John Parker would go up and he would sit down and have a million different people and a million different friends because he was willing to start asking questions and say, you know, I don't know anything about what you're doing and I'd like to know more. And when you're in that basis of I need to know more information, people are always going to be receptive to you. When you turn around and say, I have information and I'm going to tell you how to run your life, you're going to find that nobody wants to be around you anymore. And it's always good with your relationship with God to sit down and to ask questions and say, you know, what are you doing? What's going on here? Well, you know, how come you're doing that? Oh, that's interesting. And why does this, and how does that work like this? And, and what goes on there? And says, Lord, I don't know how to come in. I don't know how to go out. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. How am I supposed to be doing that? That's somebody that you want to, you know, you can help. You can teach. They have a teachable spirit. Where somebody who says, well, God, this is my life and I expect to be at this age. I'm supposed to be married. I should have so many kids. I need to make so much money and I'm not making this much money now. And I don't have this. And why isn't this right, God? And, and I thought I had this all planned out and I graduated college and I should expect all these type of things. And now, God, you'll let me down. And God, if you don't give me this, I'm going to go kill myself. And God's like, gee, where are you coming from, pal? Who wants to be around you? You're, you're, you're bottlenecking and strangling everything to go in a certain direction. We're wisdom. We're friends. We're common sense. Where you can have discernment is to sit down and say, let's ask some questions. Let's think outside the box. Let's think a step ahead of this stuff. Let's be patient. Let's not get our boat rocked in some of this stuff and say, hey. And so our church, it's marching off into the future. And we want to be able to say, and trust me, I'm at that point where I'm saying, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where you want us to go as a church, but I want to, I want to be smart enough to say, Lord, show me how to come in and come out. How are we supposed to handle a building deal and to pay this and to do that and take care of that and do this over here and corporate law over here and love the people over here and outreach to the neighborhood and we have a thousand things to accomplish. But the, the key is, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't. I love you. 
I know that I'm a sinner saved by grace. And how are we supposed to know to come in and come out and handle a thousand things? Just like you. You've got a thousand different dilemmas facing you. You've got a job you're looking at. You've got this you're looking at. You're going into marriage or something and you're saying, how am I supposed to conduct myself? I, you could be having a child and say, how am I supposed to be a mother? You know, there's a lot of things in your life that build anxiety in people. They're, they're, they're full of anxiety. And, and you just say, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. And God likes that. He goes, ooh, that's a breath of fresh air. You know, can't you just picture God up in heaven? Uh, he's going, oy vey, you know, shut up. You know, everyone's... And finally, somebody's up there going, hey, Lord, uh, I don't know. And this, this prayer strikes God, and God blesses them, and Solomon goes off on a trip like you wouldn't imagine. So... Uh, he becomes a very, very interesting character.